Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, darkrooms, wood shops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concept, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. Today, I'm excited to be chatting with Nellie Davis and Kelsey Knight-Moore. Both are textile fabricators and printmakers, having met while working together at Excel Fine Arts, a high-end silkscreening shop. They have been friends and colleagues ever since. Nellie started out as a Russian major at Grinnell College and quickly was drawn to an interest in Russian puppetry and fabrication. She's worked for Sesame Street Live, Jim Henson Productions, and for artists included Jim Hodges. She specializes in, among many other skills, stitching, draping, embroidery, pattern making, and paper construction. Kelsey holds an art history degree from Barnard with a concentration in studio art. She also specializes in stitching and has skills in tufting, costume design, pleating, and pattern making. She has over a decade of experience working closely with contemporary artists to realize large-scale textile pieces while continuing a studio practice of her own. One of the questions I have for you guys is um, something that we've talked about in the past that textiles is like covers such a huge number of processes and techniques. And I'm wondering if you guys could kind of talk about all the different techniques within the word of textiles and what you guys specialize in in those. Well, there's there's a lot of uh, of processes within that, of course. Um, I identify I like my background is in stitching mostly, and I think of myself as a stitcher predominantly, but also as like a collector of skills. So thinking about um, embroidery and knitting and weaving and dyeing and um, sort of surface treatments. And um, I have a lot of curiosity about the ways that soft materials can be manipulated and but the, you know, the world is vast. Now we, um, you know, recently have been learning 
and executing projects in tufting, um, so making carpets and, um, yeah, and macrame. We just did a giant macrame project as well. Um, and all of these are considered textile arts. Yes, I'd say I'd say so. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and uh, and sort of yeah, soft material manipulation broadly, I think is. Um, yeah, it's a big, wide world. <laughs> it also uh, encompasses upholstery often and foam manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all these kind of more sculptural. Uh, so applying even possibly multiple techniques to get to more sculptural places or, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, even just within sewing, you know, stitching, people say, oh, so you're a tailor? And I think, no, 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 I'm not, I'm definitely not a tailor, but that's a real, you know, that's a, a very, people spend their whole lives honing those skills, you know? Um, and it seems like there's a lot of kind of shared space or flip-flopping between like industrial processes mm-hmm. and um, fine art, like to be a tailor, to be a pattern maker mm-hmm. is a useful skill to make sculpture and there's like a shared space. It seems like there's a lot of that with like the dyeing and the weaving too. Definitely. And sort of these, you know, where are these skills applied in a fashion context, in a costuming context, in a, um, and it, some of the very same skills can yield very interesting sculptures just by changing material or changing scale or changing, you know, kind of one element of it. Um, you could be engaging in very traditional um, kind of craft problem solving or craft uh, skill sets and you know, bringing it into a fine art or like contemporary art context by um, exaggerating some part of it mm-hmm. or um, applying those skills to a different material. And you guys have worked in kind of all of those spaces, like costuming, fashion. Do you, do you feel like costuming? Definitely, I've done some some fashion related things. I, I mean. <laughs> in my own clothes and uh, in wedding dress construction, but um, but not, yeah, I, I wouldn't sort of, that, I think that's sort of like the field that I've engaged with the least, I would okay. say. Um, I started my career in puppetry, so I was interested in the mechanical aspects and anatomical aspects of how things move, uh, but my skill set was primarily in stitching. Um, I don't, I've always been sort of a Renaissance woman and had a lot of different skills that I didn't know what, and had no idea how I wanted to specialize. So um, this field has uh, been a a good one for me because I'm, it's, I guess I would consider myself like a hook and needle worker maybe because it that has a nice sound because <laughs> um, there are many applications here and it also involves when you say hook do you mean like crocheting like crochet style? hook okay 
yeah. Um, uh, maybe you can put tweezers into that mix, too. <laughs> <laughs> so the listener knows Nelly does a lot of very detailed, small work as well. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I guess thinking of puppetry, um, my interest was in translating things from two from three dimension or two to three dimensions so pattern making yeah um which I don't think people usually think of pattern making as being translating things from two to three dimensions but it's yeah I think that that translation has always been interesting to me Mm -hmm. um you have a lot of experience in working with paper as well and so and in sort of sculptural paper and also as a printmaker um so those you know that like 2d to 3d you know interest I think uh travels over those fields as well can you talk about some of your experience with paper um well I started I've always worked in paper from I, like the first thing I made out of paper, I was four years old and made a working Ferris wheel. Wow, um, that's amazing! And often made animals growing up because my I wanted to have lots of pets that my parents would never let me have. Lots of exotic <laughs> pets, so I've always like my whole life have been making birds out of paper, and mm-hmm. um, and that's how my interest in puppetry came along too. As I was like wanted exotic pets that my parents would never give me. Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> that you talk about translating from 2D to 3D with pattern making, but then when it, you add puppetry to it, you're kind of adding movement as like a third stage, which is interesting to think about textiles as like a move, uh, art form that has movement in it, both in fashion just and just in general. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the movement of these soft materials, um, both intentional and unintentional um, movement <laughs> is uh, like always a uh, you know always a factor you know a, sometimes a wonderful thing to be able to engage with and um, and exploit and other times a, just you know a thing that tortures you <laughs> <laughs> um, I made uh, one of the ways I've advanced, advanced my skills in sewing over the years has been t- to volunteer to make friends wedding dresses uh-huh. um, that is very generous <laughs> uh, and the thinking behind it was that I would have some control over what fabrics I wanted to work with or explore mm-hmm. um, also a very precious opportunity to work with expensive fabrics which um, I wouldn't necessarily be able to fork out the money for um, under my own budget constraints so um, it would allow me like a very precious opportunity to explore new draping possibilities and uh, working with different fabrics um, and of course like the opportunity to spend more time with a good friend who yeah. is always a nice thing <laughs> uh, but but one of the uh, one of the things that we say to my friends if I'm making a wedding dress for them is that I will make your wedding dress for you but I cannot come to your wedding because <laughs> <laughs> it, it's too because hard to see it it's too hard to see it in motion yeah um and it just means that I'll obsess over things like when I see the dress move I will obsess over you, you know things that are only 
hopefully only apparent to me, but like those, I'm just too fussy when it comes to seeing the final yeah. result on the runway. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the ultimate runway. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, Kelsey, you'd mentioned um, in an earlier conversation about ideas of like hanging textiles and like movement your comment about sometimes it's on purpose and sometimes it's not can you talk a bit about the challenges of presenting textile as like a fine art you know in the language of the white cube yes I I um I think we're having a, a a new renaissance in sort of textile or like a new interest um in textiles as a way of making contemporary sculpture. Um, I think that we kind of had a real heyday of that in the, in the seventies and, um, so excited it's back. (laughs) Yes, I know. I mean, major museum exhibitions have been mounted and, you know, um, looking back at these sort of canonical, uh, practitioners and, and also, um, you know, this, this new interest. And I think that, um, one of the great challenges is making work in these soft materials that will last. And as people who are maybe not familiar with textiles are exploring this media, figuring out a way to make things archival, figuring out a way to make um, sort of institutional scale pieces um, Perform the way that a that a big painting would, or the way that a really big uh, metal sculpture would. Mm-hmm. And um, when you say perform, you mean not change over the exhibition, be able to be bought by a collector and be stable. Those kind of exactly, okay. and sort of like travel from the studio safely in the conventional ways that we've developed to transport artwork be removed from its packing whatever the solution was you know what whatever strategy uh was landed upon and installed in a way that it still looks the same as it did when it left the studio and um what are some of the problems with that like tangling or could be tangling could be matting could be being wrinkling wrinkling um (laughs) it it you know textiles and soft materials are much more susceptible to um, temperature and humidity changes. Um, They could just kind of come out of the box looking a little bedraggled. You know, it's sort of like, um, or or just like looking like they're having a bad hair day. (laughs) Um, They need to be judged. Yes, they have to get, you know, maybe they need to be steamed or or pressed on site or, um, you know, style, even just sort of styled as they are installed, you know, is it able to sort of um, hold the same um, position in its box that it will be in on the wall. Um, and do you find art handlers don't necessarily have that skill set to kind of um, take it out of the box and make it look? Yeah, I mean, like I think should. that the um, I think that the levels of support are um, wide and varying. You know, some places where textile work is arriving have you know great facilities and they have a steamer in their collection and they you know have somebody knowledgeable that's receiving the work and getting ready to install it um 
sometimes they have very detailed and like excellent instructions um, that travel with the work and other times, you know, Not none so of those conditions are true. <laughs> yeah. um, and I mean, that kind of leads into a question I have for both of you because we're in this Renaissance moment, but you guys have been masters of this craft when it was not fashionable um, <laughs> in the contemporary art space. Can you talk about your experiences with, and I know it's like a age-old argument, the kind of craft versus concept uh, tension. Like, where do you, you guys obviously see it um, kind of entering contemporary art more, but like, how do you feel having kind of front row seats to that conversation for the last I'm not going to say how many years because <laughs> for some time you guys are at the top of your field. Do I look that old? No, but I don't want to say it. Um, I feel I feel proud of those numbers. I'm not I'm not scared. But okay. for um, the last 20 years, you guys have been rocking it. <laughs> um, it's been, I mean, it's very interesting to, I, I mean, I entered college with a skill set in sewing and didn't, you know, and I wanted to study fine art and I didn't think, I, I felt like I needed to gain skills. Um, I didn't really have an appreciation initially. I don't think that my sewing skill set was was an art making skill. Uh Um, and, uh, and I think it, it took some exploration, um, in, in school and with, um, sort of my, my first clients to, uh, to have this realization that I had a, um, that I had a really like viable art making skill set. Um, from yourselves as artists when you started, learning these techniques? I grew up in the Midwest, and um, uh, I had no idea that sewing was a marketable skill. Uh, I, In general, it was a practical skill. I learned a lot of my skills from 4-H. That's awesome. Um, and I didn't realize until I moved to New York that it was marketable and that people, not everyone, knew how to do it or do it well. I took a lot of uh, quilting classes at a local uh, fabric store, and I worked in a um, in like a discount fabric store with uh, with kind of crafty you know crafty ladies that were um, three and four times older than I was. Um, I was probably fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen when I worked there, and mostly was working with middle-aged women. Um, who really kind of took me under their wing, but they thought of themselves as quilters or crafters or, um, and, and definitely the, the, uh, the occasional like textile artist, um, which, uh, always kind of, or like fiber artist, um, which meant that they were into sort of doing like wackier things. But, um, I, that was a term that I was like, uh, very early on, very not interested in um, having okay. ruffles come? feathers for some reason, right? It's funny. I uh, um, I think that there's a I don't know. It it conjures some. I now sort of think of those things, think of those description descriptions as being very benign. But I think in that moment there was like a 
it kind of conjured a very specific person um, or like a very... It's like a cliche from the 70s almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, generationally. <laughs> maybe it's hit um, some chords. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I don't know, maybe just like baggy pants and like a lot of vests um, come to come to mind, like this... Um, Macrame jewelry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, which now, I don't know. Which would I, be amazing. Yeah. I, I know. I feel like I'm like, like slowly transitioning into the thing that I rebelled against. Yeah. All those things younger. sounded bad. And then we were just like, we're ticking down through that list right now. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, uh, I felt like I wanted to get better at drawing or better at painting or that I, I needed to develop these other sort of more traditional art making skills um to to be a, a like a real artist or so you went to art school for undergrad right you were at Rizzi? I uh n- no I uh I graduated from Barnard with uh, an art history degree and a I did not know that concentration awesome. in um studio art so I did do like a, a studio art thesis but um but I was a art history major um my my parents um firmly said no art school. Um, they also said no New York, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) look at you now. (laughs) What about you, Nellie? Were you, uh, I was viewing yourself as an artist. Um, no, I, I, uh, my parents were both trained artists, uh, but ended up working in other fields. Mm -hmm. Um, and, there was really no value outside of my home. There was very little value for art in the public school I grew up like going to um, and I got good grades so everybody said that was a waste of my time Um, so I didn't I didn't grow up having a good appreciation for the arts outside of home Uh where my parents my parents very really valued art and I grew up going to art museums with them but I think uh, unfortunately I'm. I place too much value in what other people think of me, maybe, and so, um, so that wasn't really a, a field I was interested in going into growing yeah. up. I was going to be a scientist or a doctor, and it wasn't until I went to college and discovered that I didn't really want to do any of those things <laughs> that I started looking at other like, options yeah. and the things that I actually enjoyed. Um, yeah, but I ended up as a Russian major. And not because uh, Russian is it because it opened up avenues of travel, mm-hmm. of further explorations, of seeing art that I had no idea existed before. Uh, Russia has a very strong tradition of puppetry, and they value puppetry as a uh, meaningful and deep art form, mm-hmm. unlike in the United States where generally it's something you do for children yeah entertainment Mm -hmm. um but it's viewed as is as important as acting i mean essentially you're acting and giving life to an inanimate object which is an amazing and magical thing when it happens yeah i mean also could be used as a definition for art (laughs) interesting um yeah so i ended up as a russian major and it was mostly because of my well those those things plus my unwillingness to decide on or specialize in one thing like once again like coming back to being a renaissance woman and not wanting to specialize 
Um, can you talk a little bit about some artists that you have worked for and maybe highlight some projects that were interesting, challenging, stand out from your experiences? Um, yeah, one of the... So Nellie and I met working in a working in a print shop together, working in um, at Excel Fine Art, um, and one silkscreen studio, a silkscreen studio, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and occasionally there would be sort of post production sewing work to be done when uh, clients would print on fabrics, um, and one of the artists that we worked for and uh, engaged with regularly at that studio was Jim Hodges. And so one of the first like big, like large scale, um, like many month long projects that Nellie and I worked on together was a like a very big denim sky, an image of a sky rendered in a denim collage that Jim developed with Nellie and um, Nellie brought me on as uh, the second of three stitchers um, and we did this sort of like large scale embroidery on um, how big how big are we talking with large 12 scale? feet tall by 20 wide it's big yeah um, a lot of it was made from clothing um, sort of like recycled jeans literally um, and so that was uh, yielded sort of all these really interesting uh, variations in the blues and the wear, and uh, you know it it offered a lot of really beautiful material facts mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or just like beautiful material opportunities. But uh, it also because we're in an age of uh, two or three percent spandex in most gene products uh it presented like a major problem later after the piece had been shown almost you know continuously for a almost a year um so we uh the the piece was traveling to four different uh museums as the as one of the new artworks that was being included in a, in a retrospective of Jim's and so Nellie and I traveled to uh to Boston to do sort of a a check-in touch-up of the piece um because the spandex was like torquing the tension of the fabric or it was it was stretching and relaxing in some mm-hmm. parts of it so it was no longer hanging as a flat piece against the wall and then later, after it sort of came back from this year-long countrywide tour, um, it uh, Nellie and I spent a few weeks um, reinforcing the back of it after the artwork had been um, acquired, and so that for the long-term health and longevity of the piece, it would have some more some more stability. Mm-hmm. So by hand tacking a, a sturdy linen to the back of it um just <laughs> um that sounds detail oriented <laughs> it was um it was an interesting interesting project uh because we the way that it was rendered uh was like day to day jim would come in assess its current state and then 
cut and add elements to the piece. So uh, one challenge of the project was that the denim in some parts would be four to six layers thick, and in other places ah. there'd be one or two layers. Um, so it wasn't a stable unit throughout the piece. Mm-hmm. Also, it with all those layers of denim, denim, it ended up being very heavy. So uh, one of the things we did to remedy that would be to cut out panels um, where um, where it was super thick to remove weight, um, also to unify it so it might hang in a uniform way across it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like lumpy kind of? So it's not like... Uh, there's also some uptake that happens when you do a dense zigzag stitch. Mm-hmm. It wants to contract the fabric and uh, and those places where there were multiple layers of fabric plus multiple layers of that zigzag happening, uh, the fabric would be more contracted versus where there were more open areas and less stitching, then it would be more relaxed. So in order for it to get hang it uniformly all the way across, like editing out some of that fabric was essential. On the other hand, then you're destabilizing <laughs> the piece overall and making it more likely to sag over time. So it was, uh, it became obvious over the length of the year, like hang hardware became an issue uh, because of the weight of the piece. Um, when you roll it up, and to transport it, then um, if you can think of one of the great things about using soft goods is that you can roll it up for transport, so yeah. you don't have to pack it flat. However, the fact that you're rolling it up, um, if there's any stabilizing element to the back, like the two layers are going to roll at different rates because of the different mm. diameters of diameter of the interior versus exterior layer. So um, and they have different hardnesses, which is why you're backing so that one rolls tighter than the other. Right. And then uh, there's going to be a wear pattern that would develop over the you know, over the length of it if you like one thing is going to compress and possibly wrinkle. Um, yeah, there's also there's all sorts of things to consider when you start rolling rolling things up and how wear patterns will like happen over time and when there's something that's stabilized and something that's not stabilized and the edge of that thing that's stabilizing it can uh, end up like damaging the piece uh-huh. itself when it's rolled. So, One of the really beautiful things about that piece and um, oftentimes one of the things that I think people are, are the most sort of allured by is uh, that textiles hung on their own um, allow or, or like fabric pieces hung on their own allow you to not have like a perfect frame or a or like a rigid frame um around you know to to make the piece like perfectly rectilinear and that piece was one of the lovely things about it was that there was you know it was just the edge of the of the fabric that had Mm -hmm. the you know you could really take a look at the stitch and you could um see you know if you if you kind of put your cheek to the wall in the museum, you could kind of see that the, the piece was um, allowed to hang in uh, its lovely undulations and sort of like the areas where super, super dense stitching had distorted the fabric mm-hmm. and made it um, kind of ripple in this lovely way. And um, because, you know, of course, a solution would be to frame it or to... Um, yeah, stretch it like a stretch canvas. Stretch it like a canvas or, um, you know, make do 
you know, introduce uh, more stable elements to to support it. Um, but we, you know, that piece initially was was had these kind of um, supportive strapping that came down to the center of the piece to sort of access um, some of the weight of the middle of the piece, but mostly it, like the actual hanging hardware itself was only along the top edge. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jim Hodges uses a lot of kind of found textile too, right? Like jeans or he does some stuff with like silk flowers. So it was like important for him to have it be material that was like harvested I guess is the right rather than making stuff from scratch mostly it was harvested yeah Mm -hmm. he would go to thrift stores across the country he really liked going to the midwest because it there were larger panels Uh (laughs) uh-huh it's amazing Uh, but he liked using like there were wear patterns on it it felt a little dirty working on it sometimes because Mm -hmm. it looked like they were it was like skins you know like there would be wear patterns of people's knees of where they sat the wallet uh, mark on the back pocket. Crotch, yeah. You know, you know? Yeah. Like the, where the wear patterns were, like it definitely, it was a lot of personality mm-hmm. uh, inherent. And yeah, it felt like we're working with skins. It felt, uh, healthy. healthy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good word. It's a good word. Also, while we were stitching it, it, you know, for most of the production, it was in several pieces, um, you know, and th- later we would join them and there'd be fewer of them and they'd be heavier. And um, but you would still need to do sort of very detailed work on these like ever bigger portions of the composition. And so as you were working you'd be really physically draped in it yourself, you know? Um, so having the piece come like up and over your shoulder and kind of drape over your chair and your workstation and, um, trying to, you know, it was very like intimate, um, trying to get, do something very detailed and precise, um, with the machine embroidery Mm -hmm. on this piece that you also had to wrangle. We, um, we eventually needed to sort of help each other move the, or like ease the weight of the bulk of the different pieces, um, which was a, a job that we <laughs> we started to call bridesmaiding. Um, like, <laughs> can I have somebody come here and bridesmaid for me? <laughs> um, and, and sort of have to like uh, just just help each other sort of alleviate the weight so that the, the machine operator could move freely um, to do whatever kind of tra- trying to continue to have um, enough control to yield like an elegant stitch line. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like there's a real physicality that you guys get into. I feel like I've seen you crawling across a table trying to get to the fabric in the middle or, <laughs> you know, even, I mean, even a loom, your feet and your hands, and everything's kind of involved in the making of it. Absolutely. Uh, there, that's one of the major challenges and interesting thing. I mean, that's, yeah, one of the major challenges, uh, of sewing on a large scale, of course, um, but in general, a lot of the materials we work with, they're hard to work with. And uh, part of it is learning how to manipulate, a large part of it is learning how to manipulate it and still get results that look clean and ideally effortless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the crazier materials or misbehaved materials you guys have used. Oh, everything is misbehaved. (laughs) Uh, One of the interesting things about working with fabric uh, 
as in the fine arts is that we don't have the tools of working in fashion. We mm-hmm. can't use traditional interfacings generally because we don't know that they're archival. Uh, so we or stabilizers, everything. A large part of we we still need we're still investigating how to make archival stabilizers. Um, when you say a stabilizer, what, what? So when you're working in fashion or tailoring, you can. Um, you can use an interfacing that has an ad- a light adhesive on it to make something mm. behave in a way that you want it to. Um, a lot of what we're doing is we're trying to be magicians with fabric and making fabric behave in ways we want it to, but it doesn't want to naturally, unfortunately. Um, one thing, another project that comes to mind is uh, working with Jim Hodges on a chiffon drape that went over an architectural cabinet. Um, mm-hmm. And the piece was made out of chiffon because the cabinet was gilded and he liked the strange effects that happened in the in putting a sheer a specific sheer chiffon in front of there was the like cabinet. a light bounce between the there was a strange light bounce that looked almost like an, an, uh, looking at a television screen or something. There was a strange depth created, uh-huh. sort of a, a little bit of a moiré effect. Ooh, moiré. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was interested in that specific fabric, but the drape of a silk chiffon, uh, it, wants to, it wants to have curves and it wants to, the weight of it, it doesn't drape like an architectural thing. Mm-hmm. So then trying to make that fabric hang as if it's a stiff architectural thing with square edges is very difficult. <laughs> what did you or guys, you guys applied like a adhesive uh, or something no, to I, it? No, we, we didn't, we didn't want to, uh, like what, what can we apply that would make it stiff that is then also archival? Like yeah. We, uh, so what I did was um, I used... In the hemline, I hung a thin chain through the through the edges to create a weighted line mm-hmm. around the edges. Also, uh, it turned out that distorting the fabric in the middle, um, I could get it to drape so it didn't want to taper in, so it would create a straighter line. Because basically the thing that was making that lovely moiré pattern was something was basically the the openness of the weave which made that fabric not want to do the same thing under different conditions um ever like it wanted you know um it wanted to it had a lot of um ability to move because of the space between the warp and weft fibers and so um because the edges had been stitched and then they had the chain in them as well, the edges of the fabric, um, as you know, sometimes, you know, that's not an unusual thing for the selvages of a fabric to be more stable than the, than the body or sort of the open center of, uh, of a field of, of a woven field. But that kind of strong edge loose middle was really exacerbated with this piece Mm -hmm. and so even though the end goal was for it to hang as a as a rectilinear shape the 
actual pattern piece that Nellie cut was this wild curve at the top um, so that the the openness of the weave of the middle of the fabric was was taken up in the top part of the pattern piece basically and so the the final result was that it looked like a square wow when it was hung so you were using the weight to manipulate the weave Okay. <laughs> As a layman, I'm trying to figure out what's happening. I was shocked at how many inches were removed, basically, wow. from the middle. Wow. Um, and sometimes you guys you work on projects where you kind of fabricate the materials that you're using. Like if you're dyeing it or weaving something, you're actually making the, the thing that you're then sewing, right? Yes. We... Uh, I'm not sort of, a, I don't have a, a lot of weaving background, but um, I, I, I have some, and I am very interested and intrigued in more. Um, so, and uh, we are now working in sort of this new facility with um, a, an organization called Powerhouse Arts, and we have access to... Um, both much larger scale weaving equipment than I've ever had in my career and also a very large tufting frame. Um, so these processes are starting from yarns and not from flat fabrics. Um, can you explain tufting just a little bit so our listeners can know the process? Because yeah. I didn't know it before and it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tufting is how uh, rugs get made um, or one of the ways that rugs get made. Um, so there is a there is a backing fabric, which is sort of like a stable, open mesh fabric um, that gets stretched onto a frame, and yarns are forced through the backing fabric um, in different uh, textures. So it could be a cut texture, so for a more traditional like rug rug, um, or a a looped texture, so kind of like more a Berber kind of style. Um, the length of those textures would yield very different results, and it's possible to do that kind of forcing of yarn through a backing fabric by hand. Um, and, you know, so some people may be familiar with, like, um, rug hooking or like or latch hooking um but it's also possible to do that on a more industrial scale with a um an electric and an electric gun or an electric and pneumatic gun gotcha and you can kind of draw with it right it's like yeah you hold it yes and draw a line or or fill a space back and forth yes exactly and um and sort of like you can choose different settings on these tools to be able to quickly, um, m much more quickly than by hand, uh, sort of create compositions. Gotcha. Being a freelancer in this field and then now working with this organization in this field, uh, it's been interesting to do sort of the business development piece um, of... Uh, yeah, uh, making money in this way. <laughs> so um, <laughs> there's a 
there's a question about like who is the ideal client. It's like, is it somebody who already has textiles as a part of their making lexicon or is it um, inviting people who uh, don't normally work in textiles to explore a new media and still be able to maintain their own hand or their own kind of visual language mm-hmm. and um, I really think of the tufting frame as being a, a painting analog I kind of talk about it that way because it feels like it, it can feel very painterly um, and uh, work through a composition um, not in a sequential way you can move around the composition yeah, it's like a mark making yeah a mark situation yes, exactly exactly um, so you could, you know, uh, in contrast to weaving, even if you were doing sort of a tapestry weave, like, you know, there's a little bit of movement, you know, there's a little bit of freedom not to move, you know, just specifically like line by line, but, um, but mostly you're, you know, you're working from one edge of a composition to the other edge of a composition. Yeah, there's almost like a printing aspect to it where you have to like enc- yeah. encode it and then transfer it because mm-hmm. it's line by line but like some pattern making or like macrame makes me think of like a sculptural tendency because you're kind of figuring out three dimensions or like building structure yes um although that too you know has sort of like a direction to the making um Mm -hmm. you know or where you would finish part of something and then you'd really have to undo a lot of stuff to get back if you, you know, if you made a mistake in a knot or if you wanted to change mm-hmm. something that had happened earlier, there's sort of like a chronology built into the, built into the composition. Um, do you guys do a lot of pre-planning before you start on a project? I mean, yeah. <laughs> it depends on the artist we're working with. Like yeah. some, sometimes it's planned out entirely. Um, sometimes, well, often it's just organically happening as you mm-hmm. go along. You have a you start out with a plan, you try to execute that plan, and then you uh, <laughs> revise, <laughs> uh-huh. make adjustments. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like there's some techniques that are harder to adjust or like uh, freehand than others. Sure, uh, part of the learning this skill set is learning how to cover your mistakes, you mm-hmm. know, or learning how to. Uh, learning how to edit efficiently or just like do everything that you can to sort of foresee problems and problem solve at the beginning and make sort of the best plans possible with the you know with all of the information available and then moving forward and seeing you know that inevitably some things were easier and other things were much more difficult and or parts that you thought you, you know, might not be successful, work out great, and other things that you thought, oh, I just, I, did, I couldn't have foreseen that that could have possibly gotten so fucked up. And then you, <laughs> and then. you have to go back and, uh, you know, and try and, and as gracefully as possible, problem solve on the fly and learn from the process and have a an open spirit about a, a like a quote unquote mistake or um, or an error or something unexpected happening. Like I think that oftentimes that's I mean that's the 
that's the whole, uh, you know, that's the marrow, you know, like that's the exciting part to me is, um, is letting the process teach you something about Mm -hmm. the material or inform the final composition or change something about like the very nature of the piece. Um, that is very exciting to me. And it's when I'm able to work with, um, other people, who share that ethos and rather than sort of seeing it like something unexpected as like a catastrophe. Yeah. (laughs) Are there like, um, common misconceptions that artists try to make textiles do? Oh yeah. It's really easy. (laughs) All of it's really easy. I have this idea. I'd like for you to uh, help me with it. I think it'll be really easy. Yeah. Thank you so much to Kelsey and Nelly for sharing with us just how difficult it really is. I want to thank you both for talking with me about your vast spectrum of skills in the field of textile fabrication. For viewers who are interested in seeing the construction and surface of Jim Hodge's piece that we discussed in some detail, called Untitled, Someday It All Comes True, from 2013, they can go to Craftsmanship Podcast Instagram or Hodge's Gallery's website at www.gladstonegallery.com. Thank you to all of our listeners and a final credit to the Bryce Arislabagia Quintet for our lovely theme song titled Mount Fuji. And please check in and subscribe to future episodes at www.craftsmanship.com. Mm-hmm.